Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. This is Perry Marshall, and I'm here with Victoria Smolkin, and she's a associate professor of history at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, and um, she has written a very, I think, important book called A Sacred Space is Never Empty, A History of Soviet Atheism, and uh, this really piqued my interest, and I, I bought a copy of the book, and um, <laughs> I've been a little bit immersed in the history of American atheism as it relates to science. And she's got this very interesting perspective on what happened in the Soviet Union. And so, well, great to talk to you. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's it's nice to have a chance to chat with you as well. And are you Russian or you have Russian background? Is Smolkin, does the name Smolkin have anything to do with what we're talking about today? (laughs) Well, probably not the name directly, but I am. Um, I was born in Ukraine, um, in Kiev. Oh, okay. So, so I am from that part of the world, and Russian was my first language growing up. So, um, okay. So, yeah, I, I suppose there is a kind of natural lineage there. Yeah. And is is that directly connected to why you wrote the book, or did, did was it other reasons that came from some other direction? You know, uh, that's interestingly not. It took me a long time to circle back around to this, um, to being interested in the the kind of that part of the world where I came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, I actually didn't begin to be interested in Russia or Russian history or Soviet history until graduate school. Um, and, you know, I mean, I was kind of casually interested, you know, in the, as, as a civilian, I guess I would say, but not a, not at a, not a, a professional way. And so, um, yeah, so I did my undergraduate degree in literature and I worked on writing and photography. So really not, not much in this um, direction. You know, I did a little, a couple of history courses. Um, so it took, yeah, it took some time. And then it was, even when I went to graduate school, it wasn't initially at all my intention to work on religion and atheism. That, um, uh, that really came out of the conversations that I was having in about Soviet history in the seminars that I was taking. Um, in part, I think it had to do with my advisor, my mentor, um, who uh, actually, his name is Yuri Sloskin, and he published um, actually a book last year that came out, a very successful book called The House of Government. And that book is on Bolshevism as a millenarian sect, right? So in okay. a way, it's, you know, it's, it, it's um, and he had been working on that book for about 20 years. Uh, and so it was kind of in the air. And it's also a huge part of how the Soviet Union has been um, understood in the West as like, you know, this kind of phrase of godless atheism, you know, or godless communism, 
is is this almost kind of cliche and yet um when i began or or this idea that you know communism is a religion or is like a religion or a pseudo religion or an ersatz religion um you know this is thrown around a lot in uh, yes. you know, scholarship and even in politics mm -hmm. and yet there wasn't actually a study that looked at what this actually means so if it was making any claims to be a religion how would that actually look so that's that's how i got interested in in the topic and then when I went to the archives in a way the the material that I found just completely sucked me in because you know I was reading thousands of pages of transcripts of you know professional Soviet atheists so bureaucrats whose job it was to produce and disseminate atheism yes uh, speaking about right this is not a profession that exists in in uh, most parts of the world I mean you could say maybe like Richard Dawkins is a professional atheist right but absolutely he is. <laughs> yeah but it's not you know there aren't usually state-funded atheist bureaucrats um you know which is really what we're talking about right this is this yeah. is who the, the the protagonists of my story are and so when I started reading the transcripts and the conversations they were having I think the most striking part for me was well, there were two things that really stuck, uh, stuck out. One is just the kinds of questions they were asking were the kinds of questions that people generally tend to be interested in, like the meaning of life, right? These are the, They were really uh, grappling with these big questions. And the second thing that um, surprised me in a way was, was that they were really uh, seemingly very sincerely grappling with those questions, that this wasn't a kind of cynical uh, maneuver, but, um, you know, they, they really were asking the questions um, um, and, and trying to answer them. And they felt that they, there was a lot at stake in whether or not they were able to answer them um, adequately. So that's, that's kind of where, where my interest began. And then the book really was trying to figure out, you know, just kind of tell that story, but then also figure out uh, whether there really was anything at stake in whether or not they succeeded or failed at their mission. <laughs> you know, they, they certainly uh, were of two minds about how important it was to the bigger project of communism. Um, and, 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 you know, I think scholars who study this are of two minds. Some people think it's this kind of unimportant marginal thing, and then others see it as absolutely the centerpiece of what communism was about. So that's, that mm -hmm. was the, the big question that was driving me to continue thinking about it and writing about it. Well, you know, the first question that I wrote down that I wanted to ask you was, why did it take so long for somebody to write this book? <laughs> that was I, I, like, yeah. how could it take until yeah. 2018? Uh, yeah. what, what do you think about that? I mean, maybe there's others. I don't know, but it's the first yeah. I know. Well, you know, it's the, the, the short answer is I, I don't know, because I actually, you know, I, I, I equally um, actually wanted to write another book. I didn't want to write this book. I wanted to okay. write a book that was kind of what one chapter of this book ended up being about, which was about um, secular rituals. So I wanted to work on this idea of replacing baptism and marriage and funeral with these um, socialist varieties of these rituals. And then I realized, 
realize that, oh, actually those rituals are part of a much bigger kind of architecture um, uh, of atheism. And then I realized that there was no book on atheism. There was there were some books um, and actually some very good books on um, the 1920s um, on religion and, um, and anti-religious persecution, as well as on the what, what I talk about in the first chapter of the book, the League of Militant Godless, which was the organization yeah. in the early Soviet period that was uh, kind of created to do this work to to spread atheism. So there are a couple of books, but they really stop in the in the late 1930s. And then why it doesn't continue? I mean, I think what's in, I, really most people that I spoke with just didn't know that this kind of continued to be a part of the story because the, this Institute of Atheism, which is one of the central institutions I, I study in the book, it wasn't even created until 1964. So mm. I think this is, it also goes against this other narrative that we have about Soviet communism, which is about liberalization, right? This idea that communism under Khrushchev is becoming more, you know, there's a kind of process of de-Stalinization. It's becoming less totalitarian. It's becoming more pluralistic within limits, mm. right? That's the kind of story that we have about the late 1950s, 1960s. And, you know, at the same time, we have this massive anti-religious campaign, and it's very hard, I think, from the Western perspective to understand how those two things um, make sense ideologically and politically for um, Khrushchev. And that's kind of what I'm trying to explain in the book, why the anti-religious campaign was actually very much part of that second wave of communist utopianism, even as they renounced Stalinism and terror and these mm. more um, repressive measures. And then I think the um, the third reason is, is quite banal, but I, I think it actually tends to be the biggest or most um, significant as far as uh, explaining why people didn't study it. And that is uh, the Russian, uh, the people actually who lived this in the Soviet Union, um, this was a this was a non-topic for them. This was, you know, they're having to take, you know, foundations of scientific atheism in high school was a, you know, just this throwaway annoying class that they had to do like the history of the Communist Party or, you know, the foundations of Marxism, Leninism. And, you know, you had to take this class. It was a required class. Everybody thought it was ridiculous. Nobody took it seriously. And, you know, this last Soviet generation generally had a very, uh, I would say, skeptical and ambivalent attitude to the ideology itself. And so those would be the people who would have taken up this project and in order to take it up they really would have had to take it seriously but what i encountered um in uh, you know when i lived in uh, when i was working on this book in russia was you know people the, the attitude was okay the soviet ideology was so uninteresting and so dry and so uh, in a way kind of performative nobody took it seriously and within that bigger framework soviet atheism or scientific atheism was the driest and most dogmatic and and like least interesting so why in the world would you take up this this topic that we all live through and know to be so boring and so uncreative and and this was um 
I think, you know, to me, that was, I'm not, I'm not saying it was an exciting and creative project, I, but I think it's an important project um, if you ask the right questions. So I, I think that, you know, that it, it required both uh, some time to pass for people to be able to look at this topic without kind of get breaking out in a, you know, in a kind of <laughs> cold sweat, uh, especially those people who live through it, um, and, and, and some distance, you know, to be able to take it seriously without kind of rolling your eyes. Um, so, so I think that's really the big reason is just most people just thought it wasn't important enough to actually look at closely. Well, it's always seemed to me that atheism and communism were very tightly related to each other. Like I, I found a quote by Lenin where he said, atheism is a necessary component of our propaganda. I don't remember where I found that. And then people like, like uh, Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris would say, oh, atheism had nothing to do um, with, you know, it, that was, that just happened. They happened to write along together. So in your research, what did you conclude about that? About the relationship between atheism and communism? Yeah. And the specific, the specific way that the Soviet Union did communism. Well, I think, I think that's really the key, is the specific way the Soviet Union did communism. Um, so that, that says to me that um, Richard Dawkins is not wrong in saying that atheism does not have to come with communism as a, as a kind of partner um, or traveling companion. Um, atheism can exist in all sorts of different forms. And, athe and really, you can't really speak of an atheism. It's really atheisms that people... Um, I think don't really address critically the, the various ways in which um, just as there are multiple religions, there are multiple secularisms, and I, yeah, I would even say atheisms that come out of different traditions, liberal mm -hmm. atheism, communist atheism. So, so I think from the perspective of the big question of atheism and communism, I think you can, you can see them as distinct and not necessarily related. In the Soviet case, I think... It's a really hard question because there you're entering into this territory of counterfactuals in a way, kind of saying, you know, could communism have survived without atheism? Yeah, that's, and, I think that's a very essential question. And, and, like, and so to Lenin, like, was it a necessary part of their propaganda? It sounds like yeah. he thought so. Well, you know, it's, you know, I, I try to explain this in the first chapter of the book. It's Lenin was, of, uh, had two two answers to that question, actually. And the first answer is exactly as you say, it's an ideological answer. And I think ideologically, there was no question that religion and communism were incompatible. And that made atheism a required part of being a communist or being a Bolshevik. So that was actually written into the party charter. In reality, um, that did not play out so neatly. So, so ideologically, Lenin completely believed that ultimately, communism would be uh, a a place, a space without religion in it, um, and that all communists would be atheists. Politically, it, Lenin was much more pragmatic, and mm. and and in fact, and and Stalin was even more pragmatic, I would say, than Lenin. So, um, you know, they're dealing with a population that is overwhelmingly religious. Um, you know, and what we mean by religious is again very complicated, but at the very least, you know, people who had until the revolution been identified 
identified through their confession. I mean, up until the revolution, you, you had churches or religious institutions registering basic data, basic census information. So this was kind of religion was the interface between people within the Russian Empire and the state. So you can't just, this isn't, a, they weren't working with a clean slate. You couldn't just suddenly one day say, well, okay, no more religion. So Lenin actually backed away from a lot of the harder policies. And he, for him, the biggest threat was when clergy or religious institutions mobilized counter-revolution, either at home, you know, by mobilizing, let's say, social movements against the Bolsheviks or abroad, you know, by by somehow mobilizing public opinion um, and even foreign governments to um, to intervene. Because I think what, what we forget, or what a lot of people forget, is that up until World War II, the Soviet Union was really fragile. You know, it, it was by no means an established fact that it would continue to exist. And certainly it behaved internally as if it was constantly on the verge of collapse. That it was, you know, mm. there was this constant rhetoric that we are besieged by enemies, we're surrounded by enemies, there are enemies without, there are enemies within, right? Some of those enemies are going to, uh, are, are, are actively working to bring this down. And so, you know, religion was a big, significant mobilizing force. Um, so, so I think Lenin, for him, it was a kind of, in the long term, absolutely necessary. But in the short term, you know, the other thing is he only lived for another seven years. He died in 1924. So, mm. so he didn't really develop his thinking on on this or many other projects um, uh, of communism as a lived political program. And this is why you have this period of of, con of contested power after he dies, right? Which version of communism or of Leninism is going to triumph? And of course, the Stalinist version is what triumphs. But there were a lot of unanswered questions left behind. And I think the religious question was, was one of them um, up until, you know, up until the, the, I would say, the war. So the way I've always personally conceptualized this is that in, in order to make communism work, the state has to have absolute power. And, and a state can't have absolute power if people believe that there's a higher metaphysical law than the state. So mm -hmm. therefore, logically, they pretty much had to try to stamp out religion. But then that ended up being a lot more complicated and, and ultimately failed. That, that would be Perry's you know, <laughs> five sentence explanation. Do you agree, disagree? Like how, how accurate is that? No, I, I think that's completely accurate. I think in okay. the and 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 in the in terms of the kind of logic of the of its internal development, absolutely. So, okay. and I, okay. I I try to make the the argument in the introduction that really and and especially in the conclusion of the book where I where I essentially say the atheism was really about about fighting competing claims to authority and truth. Yes, right. Right, And, and this was really, rather than anything with a coherent substance in and of itself, it was a weapon to, to kind of wield against one's enemies, right? So, yes. um, and so, you know, once it stopped being useful as that <laughs> kind of weapon, I think it, it really was just discarded. Um, 
you know, it's, it's, again, it's hard to say, well, I think, so first part is of what you said, right? That communism needed total monopoly on truth and power. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Atheism was an essential tool to getting there theoretically, um, and certainly was perceived to be, um, to be such. Part two of what you said is it turned out to be a lot more complicated and indeed. (laughs) And so um, that's where you see um, all of these oscillations back and forth, right? You go hard line on religion, then you go soft line on religion, you persecute this, con- uh, uh, this religious group, then you persecute another religious group. Because the politics, right, they, the first kind of the first part of what you said is really about ideology and about ideological coherence. The second part, you know, oh, it's a lot more complicated there, you're dealing with politics and society. And those things are always less coherent. <laughs> right, than an ideological system. So there you're dealing with people and their kind of idiosyncratic ways of living in two ideological realities simultaneously. And this was the thing that, that, um, that the communists, uh, the ideological cadres found the most kind of maddening and, and surprising is people who would say, well, I, you know, I believe in God and I believe in communism. What's the problem? You know, people for whom those two, that ideological contradiction wasn't actually a contradiction. Um, so, so yeah, I think I think throughout the rest of the story is how do how to try to make politics and society how to square politics and society with the ideological coherence that these professional ideologists kind of imagined. Um, but that Soviet society, of course, didn't. You know, they were not. Um, and in this, I think they're not different than you know if you look at professional religious clergy and the and lay people right um or kind of casual casual churchgoers you know not every person who goes to church is a theologian versed in the dogma of the faith right so 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 what's interesting in the soviet case is that what they what they wanted if they were to succeed on their own terms to kind of make this analogy every soviet person would have had to become a kind of theologian of Mm. marxism leninism right and they would have had to consciously understand the various contradictions in front of them and then live according to the the righteous path right of marxism leninism and make sure that they didn't do anything that violated those contradictions um so i mean it, it's a kind of the, the in a way what's what's interesting here is not so much that they um had this kind of ideology or theology and then they had you know the more complicated social reality it's that they genuinely tried to square the two i mean so many churches live very comfortably with a kind of people who are not theologians and there isn't the expectation placed and they don't consider their their entire religion a failure if every parishioner is Mm. not literate in their theology whereas the soviets in a way that was their measurement of success right until every soviet mechanic can speak marxism leninism we're not done and so (laughs) you know so in a way it's I, i think you have to really um you know, take a step back and look at how, in a way, it's what what they failed because they took it too seriously. They were unwilling to kind of mm. live in a world uh, where people kind of live between in this routinized, you know, religious tradition or ideological tradition, and they kind of did one thing on one day and one thing on another. That was not acceptable. Okay, okay. So I'm tracking with you, but then that raises another question. So I get to the end of your book, and you talk about how 
um, the, I think is Gorbachev finally decided, you know, we're, we're going to embrace the Orthodox church and everybody got on TV and they kind of made up and, and all <laughs> of that. Um, and, and this had been kind of on the rise sounds like for some time. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and then the Soviet union caves in. <laughs> Right. Okay. Okay. So, like, did the Soviet Union cave in because um, they couldn't kill religion? Did religion get accepted because the Soviet Union was just getting weaker and weaker? Like, I in do you see a connection between these two things? What do you think? Oh, I think I think that's a that's the biggest question. And, you know, again, this is where my conservatism as an academic, my my discomfort with kind of making claims that are bigger than my evidence comes in. Yeah. Um, so so taking off, let's say, my professional hat. Right. And putting that to the side. Right. Um, right. I would say that based on the story that I followed uh, about the internal developments of the political and ideological apparatus, they understood by the 1970s and most certainly by the 1980s that the Soviet population was no longer invested in communism as an ideology. Oh. That doesn't mean that they were not patriotic citizens of the Soviet Union. Yeah. It just meant that they really did not subscribe to the central tenets of the dogma and um, really were indifferent to it. That was the biggest discovery that the, the people, you know, they could be Soviet patriots, but for them, that was much more about the war, about their own kind of life experiences. And that doesn't, and again, I want to also just make very clear, that doesn't mean that they were, you know, liberal Democrats or that they somehow <laughs> wanted to be, right? It was, I think people kind of say, oh, well, if they weren't communists, then they were anti-communists. And I don't think... Um, I don't think it's that binary. It's just that they just didn't have that revolutionary fervor and ideological investment. And so here the Communist Party, the Soviet Communist Party faces a problem, right? Because its legitimacy and its coherence rests on these claims that it makes about the world, right? Otherwise, yeah. it just is about power, right? If it's not about the truth of the claims, then it's just about power and about holding together a huge empire made up of many different national groups, many of whom are not content to be there in this empire, right? Because this is also the period in which you see the rise of nationalism coming out of the different republics. So this is, I'm, I'm just drawing this out to say that by the mid-1980s, there was a, an acute awareness of crisis within the political apparatus. And so they were operating from a position of weakness, I would say. And that is why, and I, I, I no other, there was no ideological reason um, why religion was allowed back into the public sphere. The reason was political. It was, yeah. uh, they were coming from this position of, of essentially trying to grasp at moral capital that remain that was now no longer in their own ideological tenets. And Very so I think that's where that's coming from. Now, 
in terms of the actual, so that answers one part of your question, right? Why did they allow religion in because they were weak? I would say yes. Mm. Um, if they were operating from a position of strength, that wouldn't have happened. And in, in fact, the meetings that I talk, I, you know, I, I have um, a section in the book where I actually go through these roundtables that they had in 1985, shortly after um, Gorbachev comes to power, where they're really talking about it and a kind of cost-benefit analysis. And they're saying, you know, on the one hand, you know, if we allow the church back in, it will really raise its prestige um, at home. That's not good. On the other hand, you know, we really kind of need help in, kind of in, in, in doing, you know, in addressing some of these social problems. And moreover, the church, and here I'm speaking specifically about the Orthodox Church, moreover, mm -hmm. the church is doing all of this really important work for us and has done all of this really important work for us uh, on the international arena. So mm -hmm. how do we square those two things? You know, is it more costly or more beneficial? And they really lay it out in, in the political calculus that is very transparent. So, and, and even based on my interview, with some of the people in this apparatus who were advising Gorbachev about whether or not he should meet with the patriarch and, and shift the position on religion, this wasn't his, it wasn't coming from him. You know, it was, it was people advising him and saying, you know, this is the right move given where we are. He, as, a, as an individual from everything that we know about him, did not really take religion seriously. In fact, he didn't even take nationalism that seriously. You know, he was a true believer in, in, com, in, in well, what he believed in was a kind of reform socialism, right? Socialism with a human face. So, you know, for him, it was a political calculation and, um, um, and one that was made from a position of weakness. In terms of whether allowing religion back in then brought about the collapse, I mean, there's so many things that you could point to that brought about the collapse. And I think one of the most important things to keep in mind about the collapse is the contingency of the events. I mean, there's just things that just began to unfold at a pace um, that was much faster than what people could kind of grasp at the time. So, you know, what I guess the, the closest I could answer, the, <laughs> the most I'm willing to say on the, on the religious question, once religion was allowed into the public sphere, it became very difficult to, and, and because of religion's very close connection to nationalism, because at that point, right, a lot of the religious institutions mapped onto ethnic groups. You know, the Lithuanians were Catholic, the Russians were Orthodox. I mean, this is, and, and you know, the, everyone in Central Asia was Muslim. So he here you have um, uh, divisions that are mapping on uh, theologically uh, onto kind of social groups. And once you allow those identities to be expressed, it, it became very difficult to explain why the Soviet Union as a structure needed to exist at all. You know, what legitimacy did it have if you had Lithuania, which had a Catholic church and a national tradition? On what grounds was it part of the Soviet Union? And, and that's where you see it coming apart, is all of a sudden all of these ethnic republics in conjunction with their religious institutions, which are uh, speaking to their shared national history that goes back way farther, you know, that goes back hundreds of years and not a couple decades in the case of Lithuania. And they're saying, you know, we're Lithuania. We don't need to be part of the Soviet Union. And this is an occupation. And so we declare independence. And that's how it falls apart. No, there's, it's a very um, 
actually a very peaceful process, relatively speaking. It's republics basically declaring sovereignty, first a kind of sovereignty, then independence. And eventually, you know, by December of 1991, there's a Soviet Union and Gorbachev is president of a Soviet Union, but it has nothing, no component parts anymore because <laughs> all of that, I mean, that's what's, what's so crazy about it is that all of the component parts have seceded. And so he's basically at this point president of, of a non-existent state. And he resigns publicly on television and says, you know, I'm no longer the president of a state that no longer exists. So, I mean, the, the whole story just, it, it's really, it, <laughs> I think that, you know, the history is still unwritten on exactly how the different component parts relate to one another. But I think that religion plays a huge symbolic role, not so much that mm. it's mobilized people and people were out in the street because of religion, mm. but because of it, it really disrupted the kind of pol the ideological coherence of the Soviet Union and why it as a structure needed to exist at all um, as a legitimate structure. What was the most surprising thing that popped up in the process of doing this book? I would say that the most surprising thing to me in the kind of big picture sense was how aware the ideological and political elites were of what was going on in their own country. <laughs> there's a sense that there's a kind of... Um, an unbridgeable gap that that opened up between the Soviet elites and um, and Soviet society, and that okay. that's part of the explanation for why you know for why the, why the collapse happened. And I guess the the surprising thing to me was that the the elites were actually aware of this gap, and they really felt it to be a problem and a crisis. They weren't just kind of blindly going along thinking everything was great. Because you have a lot of regime, you know, uh, I, I don't get the sense, for example, um, that the, the, the Russian Tsar, shortly before the collapse of the autocracy, was aware that this was about to come down and that there was an unbridgeable gap between the imperial autocracy and society and that something needed to be done. He continued to operate as if he had divine right to rule this empire. And all of these social grievances were kind of marginal to the grand project of imperial autocracy. And he was genuinely surprised, as were many others, when the revolution happened. The thing of, that's interesting about the collapse of the Soviet Union, that revolution, is that nobody was really surprised because everyone, they were surprised that it happened because it seemed unthinkable. But when it began to happen, it made perfect sense because everyone had been aware for, you know, at least a decade that they had been performing this, this um, you know, there's a Soviet joke, uh, you know, we, um, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us, you know, <laughs> so there's this kind of performance, right, that we pretend that we are patriotic and enthusiastic Marxist-Leninists and they pretend that, you know, they are too, but nobody actually is. And so there's this, um, there's, that was the surprising thing to me, uh, that, that there was such an awareness and such a, um, such an effort to do something about it, but what they encountered was the kind of rigidity of their own political system and ideological system. You know, that they, I think there is a, a narrative that the system was unreformable. And mm. I think there is something to that, that even when they recognized that there were problems, 
they were very constrained in what they could do to actually address those problems, in large part because of the ideological, um, the, the centrality of the ideology to, to the political project. Um, but then on the other hand, I was uh, recently having a conversation with somebody who works on China, right? And China is a good counterexample because China um, is nominally still communist, right? I mean, it's the Communist Party is still in charge in of theory. China. Yeah, I've been there so, five times, so I, right. I'm very familiar. No, yeah. no I, I, so, so it's, an, it's an absurd claim, right? Um, because <laughs> if, you've been to, if you've been to China, it is, you know, more capitalist than the cap most capitalist Western country in a lot of ways. But, but politically, the Communist Party still has a monopoly on power. And, and why is that? Because they have never actually backed away from their ideology. They never said, oh, actually, we're wrong, you know, and we need to <laughs> actually accept, you know, we need to, to reform our way out of communism. They, they've never, I think, undermined their own legitimacy by, by reforming themselves out of power. Even when they've taken on reforms, they've not really, they've managed to package those reforms as somehow still all part of um, the great the great project of Chinese the Chinese path to modernity and the Communist Party leading that you know leading the way um, so it's not that the so in a way like it, it is possible to imagine a reality in which uh, the the Soviet Communist Party continues to exist and just does whatever China did right and makes all of these economic reforms but doesn't make political reforms and certainly doesn't question its ideology we can imagine in an alternate universe that if they had been for example willing to use violence which interestingly they weren't as willing mm -hmm. as they could have been that they that the Soviet Communist Party you know maybe might have stayed in power if there were you know if I don't know if there was more riches to go around and they could have split the money, you know, of, among the republics in some way that was uh, agreeable to all the national elites. It, you know, you, you're kind of, you know, this is all completely speculative. But, um, but I think that's all to say that really the collapse was, there were so many factors that are just outside, uh, that are just contingent, right, that just kind of happened together. And I think you know, we can't kind of put a neat bow on it, you know, and it, and I certainly don't know that it was inevitable, certainly not when it, what, when it actually happened. You know, I think a lot of people think that it could have, you know, chugged along for another <laughs> couple decades, but, mm -hmm. um, and that's what makes it interesting as a history, right, is that it's unexpected, and yet when it happened, it was completely, it made perfect sense. Um, what do you want the world to take away from your book? What lesson do you want learned? I mean, I don't know that I, if I, if I have a lesson, it's probably so buried in, in my own thinking about this. Um, but I guess I would say that in the, maybe this is banal, but just that things are not what they seem that, um, for example, this godless monolith that was imagined to be, you know, the greatest force of evil that humanity has ever encountered, in fact, was just much more complicated and and, and less coherent and in fact less mm. powerful than, than I think outside parties believed. And so a lot of the, the kind of, a lot of, I would say a lot of people's um, 
political thinking comes out of projections and and fears about the other side that are based that are based really on um, on certain myths and uh, and certain tropes that um, that trigger certain you know specific kind of emotional responses. And I you know really my only my only lesson is just to complicate this right to say okay <laughs> the, you know the the world is not what it seems and you know maybe you know before we start attributing absolute evil to various sides of any conflict um you know maybe you know think about our shared human condition and in a way i don't mean to sound banal but in a way i think what was what's important and what i tried to do in this book is is show that even that these atheists were grappling with all of our same human questions mm. and that they felt that they yes they they had a political political commitments that were different but there was the sense that somehow communism was not meeting certain human needs and that's what you know a good portion of the book is them trying to actually meet those needs mm -hmm. and being aware that they're failing to meet those needs so they you know they they in a way that that the kind of second generation of soviet people found themselves on a train that they didn't buy a ticket to right <laughs> like they they were living in a, a, a regime with an ideology that they had to kind of try to make sense of and then you know make um work we're we're going to wrap here in a minute, but but you should probably just back up and kind of explain. You have a really interesting part of your book where you describe how they tried to destroy the baptisms, the marriages, and 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 funeral ceremonies of the mm -hmm. church, but mm -hmm. then they didn't have anything to replace it with, and then they tried. Can you? Because I I think I think that that explanation is important to what you just said. Yes, absolutely. So that so that was kind of in the back of my mind when I kind of made this point about um, addressing human, you know, kind of human needs. Um, so one of the things when they when the Soviet when Soviet communists thought about religion, they were really thinking of it as a multifaceted phenomenon. And one one side of that was this issue or, or the side of spiritual culture, and that had to do with rituals and aesthetics and you know emotions and the experience of being in a church service and all of these things that are beyond just theological truth claims or political authority of, of the church. Um, which, you know, they did manage to di vastly diminish the political authority of the church. And they did renounce loudly the theological truth claims of religion. But what they could not actually address adequately were these spiritual components, this idea of what do you do? How do you address grief and suffering um, or joy? I mean, you know, there was, a, especially in these moments uh, where an individual is left completely alone and they rely rely on, you know, on the community to, to support them through a trauma, for example. So, so they, they well, were, they, they had the teachings of Lenin. There's this great moment. Didn't, didn't that make you feel better after your wife dies of cancer? I mean, come well, on. This is, so, so there's this, there's this wonderful moment that in the archives where they are speaking about what to do about death and how to speak about death. And 
the the ideological cadres are all sitting around and they're saying look religion this is what religion does well this is how it manages to keep people tied to the church because when you know it has an answer to death it has rituals around death and it has a way of alleviating the pain of death now what do we have what are we going to say to people when their loved ones die that that you know you're mortal but matter is eternal how is that going to help anyone so they actually use that word that you're mortal but matter is eternal (laughs) (laughs) well that's so comforting right which but but that's what's so 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 brilliant is they say this with complete awareness that this is absurd that this is not comforting and yet they say okay so what do we say with a straight face well they say it with a straight they say it with a frustration like this is all we can say what else do we have to say you know, and then and then they look around the room and there's the sense that they're waiting for someone to come up with something better, but nobody can come up with anything better, you know? And so they're left with this materialist ideology and then, you know, and then and then they can't really think their way out of it. And so in a way, there's a kind of, um, you know, tragic element to it because they genuinely recognize the problem. This is what I mean when I say that they're aware of, their, of the shortcomings and the kind of contradictions and they they note them but then they can't quite figure out an exit strategy there's i interviewed the chair of the commission which was formed to create socialist funerals Oh wow! Yeah, and wow. He, and he was a um, he's he's gone now. His, his name was Yevgraf Duluman, and he was the probably the most prominent Soviet public atheist. In fact, he even he continued to be an atheist. He even had an online presence. I think he corresponded with Sam Harris even at one point. Um, mm. So he he was a real figure, and he he um, I, I you know got to know him over the course of my research, and I spoke with him about this problem of death and he said I said well what about funerals and he kind of shrugged and he said I mean you know it's death like as if this is just understood and then he goes as every as every person from that part of the world they immediately when failing to have a kind of adequate response go to Tolstoy and he says so he says well you know in his diaries Tolstoy has a great section where he talks about his brother dying and that his brother dies and nobody knows what to do and everyone is you know you know kind of in in having you know this this really emotional response and crying and wailing and running around and everything is disorganized and then the priest comes and you know Tolstoy himself was anathemized by the Russian Orthodox Church he was a a dissenter so he was by no means a fan of the Russian Orthodox Church Mm, but he says in that moment you know when the priest came everybody calmed down and order was restored and the priest said you stand here you do this you say this and somehow that allowed us to move from this one moment to the next. And so, you know, he says, even Tolstoy, who was the great dissenter and no friend of the church, understood the power of ritual and understood the power of the clergy um, and of the theology in that particular moment. So Mm -hmm. they never really arrived at an adequate solution to this problem. Um, But I think what makes it valuable is that they thought along with this project and in a way are one example of of a very peculiar case in which a group of people with tremendous resources tries to 
you know, tries to um, create a world in which religion is unnecessary and then what they discover along the way. And I think that in and of itself is an interesting and valuable um, history. Um, now, what you take away from it as far as lessons, that I think, you know, I, I would not dictate. But, um, right, but, I think, right. but I think it's important, it's important to, to see that, you know, a lot of, uh, one of the things that's interesting to me when I read about new atheism, for example, is that they're, the questions that they're asking and the proposals that they, they're making, I mean, this was all, like, the Soviets did this in the 60s, you know, in the way, like, yes. the, the, so a lot, they're ask, already asked those questions, and they already recognize those problems. And, of course, the, the new atheists in the West are not aware of this these conversations. But, um, you know, but it's interesting that they also are stumbling into the same um, dead ends, I think, as, mm -hmm. um, as, as the people, the protagonists in this book. So I think that's instructive and interesting. And again, you know, what you take away is, is, is up to you. But, um, but I think it's valuable to see a project taken almost to its natural, to its logical conclusion. You know, they almost yep. took it to, to a conclusion and where did they run into the into hurdles and obstacles and how did they make sense of those? Um, I think that's really the story for me. The part that I thought was most interesting was the museum in in um, Leningrad, uh, St. Oh, Petersburg. Yeah. yeah, right, 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 yeah. And, and my daughter lived in St. Petersburg for five months two years ago. And I actually oh. went to St. Petersburg oh, to cool. visit her. And I, uh -huh. I didn't know that museum was there. I thought it was very interesting how the the message that the museum was trying to put out has changed a lot in the last mm -hmm. 50 years mm -hmm. right um, yeah. and and also I which the 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 fact that the museum was made from a cathedral speaks to the title of your book a Sac sacred space is never empty yeah. <laughs> yeah. which you no know, like nature abhors a vacuum <laughs> like you can't take away these metaphysical questions well the nature pores a vacuum is is actually um that's the literal analog in the english language to that proverb so so oh. it means the same thing so it's a proverb a russian proverb but instead of saying nature pours a vacuum literally it's a sacred space is never empty but if you looked it up in a in a you know in a dictionary lexical dictionary it would be that would be the so that's actually the title of the book in fact my dissertation title i tried to make it initially nature pours a vacuum but it sounds so bad that, <laughs> that um you know everybody it was like it sounds terrible um and then they said well why don't you just translate the russian because i translated initially it you know not literally but but to the kind of an analogous um uh proverb so anyway so it's exactly right yeah it's exactly right well i think look i think it's a great truth i mean there's the story jesus tells of you know somebody gets rid of an evil spirit and then seven more show up to inhabit the person right oh <laughs> yeah and okay well yeah. that's what he's talking about yeah 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 yeah. It's, yeah it's it's the exact same thing and i i found this to be true uh like there's no non-belief mm. uh, I mean, all of us have to have an ideology right well, certainly historically we don't have any examples of a successful mass unbelief project 
no that's I mean, true yeah i mean individually you know you people are believers or unbelievers but i think as a kind of um as a mass kind of community a communal identity um it, it was very hard to organize around unbelief it's true um so well thank you again for for having me and i'm looking forward to um to seeing you know to seeing uh, i don't know i don't even really know who your audience is so i'm excited it's a, to it's a huge out. hodgepodge of different different people um well i i, I want to recommend this book again um a sacred space is never empty a history of soviet atheism and i've been interviewing victoria smulkin and um look i think i think this is an important contribution and it really demands that people think about these questions and I, I don't I mean I wasn't I wasn't aware of how deeply they had grappled with these questions and maybe the biggest takeaway I, I got from this interview was well that the the atheist Russian government bureaucrats were probably a little more honest with their dilemmas than we imagined them to have been yeah I think that's fair <laughs> I think that's that's a fair takeaway well, well, well thank you so thanks. much for Thank you. It was great, great to have you on. We'll, we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll get some, some comments and some interest about this. And thanks for your time today. Thank you. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com.